Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and creator of the show, Tom Junkett. Christopher, do you think anybody's ever going to get sick of all of our Beatles episodes? Yes. (laughs) But I'm not naming any names. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we've chatted with um, John Lennon on two occasions. Not we've chatted. We've featured classic uh, interviews with him. And that's kind of the purpose of this show, Famous Lost Words, meaning the lost interviews that in most cases have only aired once. Long story short, we are featuring an interview with Paul McCartney from a few different eras, I believe. I'm, I may be wrong about this, but it sounds like it's from the same session to me. He covers a, a whole expansive uh, territory as far as the songs are concerned because it's, it's a greatest hits record he's promoting. Okay, so this is great stuff, and that's coming up on this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Hey, Tom, what else have we got going on this week? Well, Christopher, we've got a brand new interview with a great friend of the show, Chantal Kreviazek. Over the past many years, I've met Chantal a number of times and worked with her on a few occasions, and she's become a friend. During my recent health crisis, she was someone who always checked in with me, and she has been just great. So in today's interview, we talk about her music her songwriting, her recent documentary that she did about her marriage to husband Rain Maida, and it's called I'm Going to Break Your Heart. That movie is now available on Crave TV if you want to check it out. Very powerful. Late last year, she put out a new Christmas album, which was terrific. I was actually one of the few people who got to hear the very, very early mixes of that, and that was fun to be part of. And also, Chantal talks about some people that she's worked with, good experiences and bad, with people like Drake, Kelly Clarkson, and Cara Dioguardi. Boy, you've got to hear these clips. We'll also play a clip from Chantal from about 15 years ago, and her reflection on that time in her life is really fascinating. But first, let's get started with part one of our conversation with Paul McCartney. There you go, Band on the Run. Is that Paul McCartney's greatest solo hit? I think so. Mm. And here he is around that time, talking about many of his greatest songs from the 70s. Tom, in November of 1978, the compilation album Wings Greatest was released. It came around eight months after London Town. Now, that was Paul McCartney's ninth album since leaving the Beatles, if you can believe that. This interview is extensive, covering not only the hits album, but everything from the influence of skiffle music on the Beatles to John's parting shot at his old bandmate, How Do You Sleep? There's a lot here. So brace yourself for a Maccafest. So in our first clip in the McCartney interview, he once again has to defend silly love songs. You've got silly love songs, which is basically just saying, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being romantic? Which is true in a way, you know, I think like the majority of people do feel like that. But I think critics and harder people who kind of have to listen to 300 records a week and therefore haven't got really much romance in their souls after a couple of years of doing that. Um, I think it's really just me saying, you know, look, I'm likely to write a lot of other love songs because I like doing it, and most people I meet like that kind of thing anyway. So it's really probably me just saying, sod you, I'm going to do it, whether you like it or not. And yet in a little way, by saying, what's wrong with that, I'm anticipating their criticism. But, you know, as I say, you know, I, I seem to keep doing it. And it seems to go down all right, so I suppose I, I will continue. I gotta say that Silly Love Songs has more hooks in it than maybe any other song in the history of songs. It's got <laughs> about three Whoa. different melodies, it's got about two different choruses, and it is 
honestly, it's like a masterclass in pop songwriting. And I really liked that song when it was out. I probably don't like it quite as much now in, in the grand scheme of things. But man, it sounded great on the radio. His vocal was great. All those melodies, the instrumentation was fantastic. I really liked it. Well, you liked it for both of us then because... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Tom, in this next clip, this then this is interesting. McCartney has to handle what could have been a really awkward moment in the interview because it concerns, of course, the ultimate shot that Lennon took at him called How Do You Sleep? Another day uh, had, of course, the famous reference in John Lennon's How Do You Sleep, which seemed to me to compare it to yesterday as a song. Did you think there was any comparison? Um, now, what was the actual thing he said? Can you remember? Yes, it was, uh, the only thing you ever did was yesterday. Since you've gone, you're just another day. How do you sleep? Oh, dear. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I mean, I remember the time those songs were coming out, you know, and it was very weird, obviously, because the Beatles had just split up and there was a lot of bad feeling. Um... And, you know, trust John to stick it in a song kind of thing. But uh, at the time, like, I just had to sort of switch off from a lot of that stuff. So probably you took more notice of the whole thing than I did because I was sort of having to hide my head in the sand a bit, you know, because it was all getting a bit too uh, bizarre. You always ask me about this. Well, because it keeps going up. Oh, man, that's so interesting that the interviewer knew more about the song than Paul did. And when he read the lyrics to Paul... Paul just says, oh, dear. <laughs> you know what? I and then, I think ooh. that was intentional on McCartney's part. I think he knew those lyrics. I think those lyrics were seared into his soul. Wow. That's just my opinion. And then it's funny how Paul says, you always ask me about that. Yeah. Clearly, the Beatles are never far from the surface in a Paul McCartney interview. And clearly, his relationship with John is never far from the surface either. And that must be hard to deal with day after day after day, interview after interview. Well, maybe with the exception of Ringo, it seems to me that they all spent an awful lot of energy not disavowing the Beatles, because you can't do that, but just trying to distance themselves somehow from this just enormous legacy and the shadow that it cast. For sure. In this clip, he talks about recording Another Day. So another day for me was um, nothing like yesterday, really. Uh, it was more the kind of song... It's it's just about everyday things, you know, people getting up, brushing their hair, getting a bath, going to the office, drinking a cup of coffee, doing a lot of paperwork, going home. It's just another day. That's the kind of feeling the song was for me. Did uh, John ever apologise or take back that criticism? Years have passed now. Oh, I don't know. You know, we talked... Uh, when things loosened up a bit after that, you know, and I seem to remember him kind of saying, well, I didn't really mean all that stuff, you know. But um, I don't know, it sort of probably depends on his frame of mind when you ask him. <laughs> uh, you know, he might he might uh, still sort of feel that bitter. I don't really know, you know. I, I don't think so. I think things have loosened up a lot. And I think a lot of the stuff that went down then just sort of had to happen because of all the pressures around, you know. There was a lot of business pressures and manager pressures and everyone was getting played against each other so it was all a bit weird at the time there you go the beatles post breakup it was all a bit weird at the time he says john didn't mean it (laughs) yeah (laughs) right um now here's an odd one it turns out tom that mccartney did have an uncle albert yeah i had an uncle albert yeah but it's the song's not really to do with him you know my uncle albert was like uh, he was great you know he's uh 
Nothing to do really with this song. He used to, after he'd had a few jars, my Uncle Albert used to kind of get on the table and tell everyone about the Bible. And he'd, <laughs> it was in a very drunken way. But uh, no, he was a great fella, you know. But the song isn't really to do with him, but the, the name's the same. We're so sorry. Paul never missed an opportunity to write about people or brief moments in his life. Whether they were true or not, it didn't matter to him. He would make it up. And like I said, in uh, Eleanor Rigby, I think he wanted to call him Father McCartney instead of Father <laughs> McKenzie. But he was too worried that it would reflect, uh, that people would think that it m- held some sort of greater meaning than it did. Yeah. But you're right. He borrowed liberally. I mean, the whole Mother Mary uh, element mm-hmm. in Let It Be, for example. And and that's what songwriters do. Sure. You know, we, we poach from our lives and, and the lives of those around us, whether they know it or not. Yeah, I guess. I guess we find out when we hear the record. Tom, the next three clips, to me, are fascinating stuff. This This is McCartney's reaction to writing for film. Now, you would think at the time that if somebody could get Paul McCartney to write a song for their movie, they would just be going, I'm not worthy, thank you so much, and just use it as is. No such luck. Here he talks about writing the theme for Live and Let Die. It was a job of work for me, in a way, you know, because writing a song around a title like that's not the easiest thing going, you know. I I was co-produced with George Martin, and I worked with George, which I hadn't done since The Beatles. We did it and finished it all up, and he took an acetate, uh, you know, it's a demo, of it out to, I think it was the Bahamas where they were filming it, and he took it to, you know, Cubby Broccoli or Harry Saltzman, one of the men. And they said, that's terrific, you know, it's a really good demo. Now when are you going to do the real track? <coughs> so George kind of looked and said, that is it. I bet you that happens every once in a while. So, that's great. When are you going to send us the real version? Oh, going, uh, that is the real version. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. It's it's a little awkward. <laughs> Speaking of awkward, writing for Warren Beatty's Heaven Can Wait was nothing short of a fiasco. I've just done one or two things recently, but very sort of weird things have happened with them. I wrote a song for, uh, you know, Heaven Can Wait, Warren Beatty's. Craziest thing, he rang me up from L.A. and he said, uh, I was in London, he rang me up, he said, um, I've got a film and I'd like you to sort of think, uh, I'd like you to... Uh, uh, thing about uh, music for it. I said, fine, Warren, you know, great. I said, well, send me a video or something of the thing. He said, well, I'd like to come over and talk about it. I said, no, it's all the way from L.A., you know, don't bother, just... So anyway, he came over, you know, and he, he showed me the thing and stuff, and I said, okay, I'll write something. So I went away and wrote it, sent it to him, and he was back in L.A. at that time, and he said, fine, I really like it, it's fine. And then one day I opened the paper and there was a big ad for the film and uh, no mention of my song at all. So I eventually found out that apparently what he's supposed to have done is he asked five separate people to write songs, like me. We all apparently sent him a song. I don't even know who the other four were. Probably John, Ringo, (laughs) Bert and Harold. But... uh, and it eventually got all the five songs, turned them all down, and didn't use songs, and didn't ring anyone up and tell them. He does a great Warren Beatty imitation. Warren is known for 
pausing for 15 seconds between words when you're talking to him sometimes. <laughs> and it's amazing how even Paul McCartney would get shafted by Hollywood, like you said. Five other writers. I mean, how do you feel when you find that out if you're Paul McCartney? It's yeah. like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, you're one of five. Yeah, and yes. none of them got used. That's what I love. That's the best postscript yeah. of the story. Boy. We're in conversation, a classic conversation from the 70s with Paul McCartney. Go ahead, Christopher. Um, he goes on to Christopher. talk about the books that have been written about the Beatles and then adds in some thoughts on the idea of a Leftovers album. There was one book written on the Beatles, the Hunter Davis, Beatles autobiography, but when, all, when it was finished and all of us read it, we all sort of agreed that it really wasn't quite true. And that's the, probably the most authoritative, like, definitive one going. And if that's not really quite all there, then some of the ones where they haven't even spoken to us before they've written them are really not there, you know. Um, and the trouble is, I suppose, a lot of the time when they don't speak to you, the p people writing the books have to go on just press comments and stuff, and you know what that's like. You know, you can write anything. I mean, I can write stuff today about... Uh, John Travolta's new film is a, a terrible flop and he definitely shouldn't have appeared as a 70-year-old gangster. But, you know, it's not true. <laughs> you just have to remember that. And a lot of stuff comes out about us is just not true. And there's one of them, Rubber Soul, was never a song. It was just a title, you know, so... But back to what you were talking about, you know, unreleased stuff. With the Beatles, generally, uh, we... I don't think there is anything unreleased maybe just one tiny little tape somewhere, but it, it must be rubbish, because we were very careful about all that. And it's not the same with Wings, because we have had a few that we, few songs that, like the couple of film songs I was telling you about, um, and there have been other things, like there was some stuff off Red Rose Speedway, because that was nearly a double album at one time. So the latest thought, anyway, is to do an album called, it's, it's only a thought at the moment, called Cold Cuts, um, and maybe do it for charity or something. In that way, it wouldn't seem like as obvious as a sort of studio thing, and maybe you could have it as a cut price thing or something. But, but I'd like to see them out, because they're quite nice, actually. You know, they're quite nice tracks, even though they got turned down. A couple of great things there. Mm -hmm. None of the Beatles biographies got it right. That's very interesting. And also, at that time, he said there were really no extra Beatles songs left over. And yet, here we are, 40 years later with all of those outtakes and remixes. But I guess in a way, it's not new stuff. It's just different versions of the classic songs like, you know, the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road or uh, or Sgt. Pepper or anything like that. But that's very interesting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, those are it's mostly like earlier incarnations of songs, sort of things that they never became in the final version that we we came to know. Um, there is the odd yeah. extra song, like in the uh, in the Abbey Road. There's uh, Paul does a demo version of Goodbye, the song he wrote for Mary Hopkin, and he also does a demo oh. of the Badfinger song Come and Get It. And those, oh, I'd love to hear. Yeah, that. those are Man, really fun to song. hear. And the Abbey Road remix is just oh, it's so brilliant. It's just crystalline sounding. Now, in, of course, in the, as opposed to you know the Sgt. Pepper mix that uh, that Giles Martin did. You know, by the time of Abbey Road, they were working in eight tracks, so they already had more clarity working for them. But still, it just brings out things that you go, where was that since I've been listening to this album for 50 years? It's, it's, it's a joy to hear this stuff, <laughs> exactly. I have to say. Next comes a real look back as he addresses the need for changing band members, both with Wings 
and the Beatles. Anyone who's ever tried to get a group going or start a group knows that, like, you quite often will find that there's one person in the group who may be good and everything, but to people just sort of don't feel like they fit. Like, for instance, when the Beatles originally, we went through a few lineup changes when we were trying to get it right, and Ringo was the last of them. You know, we changed our old drummer for Ringo, and then before that we used to have a bass player, but he left for another reason. Um, before that there was a fella on T-Chess bass, and before that was someone else on banjo, before that was someone on washboard. You know, going back into the haze of sort of skiffle days. There really so, was somebody on banjo? <coughs> yeah, it was a fella called, uh, yeah. Oh, blimey, going back a bit now though, I mean, but, yeah, there was a fella on banjo. It was Griff called Griff on banjo. That was really, you know, when I joined the group, that was a long time ago. So in other words, what I'm saying is, like, most bands go through a lot of personnel changes, but by the time the public see them, they're kind of settled. Like, the Beatles were sort of settled by the time the, the, most of the public saw us, and we never changed from there. But with Wings, we had to go through all our sort of changes in the public eye, because there was no way outside of really just emigrating to, um, you know, South America or somewhere, and they even would have caught up with us there. So yeah, we, we went through a few personnel changes. It was mainly to do with sort of personalities and stuff. All the people were good players, but we just didn't hit it off together, you know, and we just weren't comfortable with each other. So for various reasons, they left along the line, you know. Wait a minute. It could have been John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Griff? It's right. the banjo player, Griff. Yeah, <laughs> I want I want you to imagine, please, please me with a banjo part, please, please. <laughs> I can't even do it, but okay. Well, that's a perfectly silly place to end off part one of our very in-depth interview with Paul McCartney. Much more to come with Paul on our next episode, including when rock stars attack, in which Paul takes a bit of a swipe at the Bee Gees. But still to come, I get to chat with a good friend of the show and a really great singer-songwriter, Chantal Kreviazek. She's up next on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic, about to welcome someone who we have featured before on the show, and she's someone I've gotten to know a bit over the years, and I'm happy to recently get to know her as a friend. She was very supportive to me last year when I was going through some pretty big uh, health issues, and she was great. Nevertheless, I am not about to make this easy on her because what we do on this show is play interviews from the past and sometimes we play them right to their faces. So the face I'm talking about belongs to the lovely Chantal Kreviazek. Welcome to the show, Chantal. Thanks, Tom. It's always good to see you. Yeah, I know. I, I can sense you tensing up a little bit about this clip that I'm about <laughs> I'm to play. Not. Yes, you are. <laughs> if it was from 1997, I would. I know. And I, I, I know we do have audio Don't from do you it. from this. Don't do it. Yeah, I can't handle it. <laughs> that I can't do. So, you know, we've got lots to talk about. We've got your new album with your husband, mm-hmm. um, Moon versus Sun, to talk about. We've got your documentary, um, I'm Going to Break Your Heart, to talk mm-hmm. about. But I do want to go back, because this is a great mm-hmm. jumping off point for this conversation, especially based on what we do on this show. So we're going back to 2006, upon the release of the album Ghost Stories. And you're with us on the morning show, talking to Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis, and talking about working with your with your husband on that album. So just have a listen to this. Busy mother of two. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. How are the kids and how old are they? Um, they are freaking adorable and I <laughs> want to eat them. I'm going to eat my young and they are one and two. One and two. One and, two. <laughs> and, the, and her husband produced ghost stories. Yes, and, and you and Rain wrote this entirely, did you? The two uh, of you? Most of it, yeah. yeah. Um, it was, it was uh, mostly us sitting down and coming up with sort of creative ways to, to write music together. And then all I can do... In, you know, they're they're all written very differently. But there's a few songs that I wrote alone. But this song, for instance, I kind of I wrote it mostly at the piano and then played it for Rain, and then he started to contribute. And then his contribution after that was letting me know that my my lyrics stunk until I finally got them right <laughs> on the fourth effort. So it's it was it was such a neat collaborative effort. How different is it to write with your husband than it is with someone else? Well, we're not polite, you know. Like with the other human beings besides your your life partner, you 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 know, you you dance around right. another individual's sensitivity and their ego, etc. And with your husband, you, you just tell each other that stinks and no and you just say no moving on and, and that's I, I mean I'll be thing. in the I'll be in the control in in the vocal booth and I'll think I've just done something stellar, you know. And I'll be like all over myself. I'll be like crying and then I'll look out at him and he's like on the phone or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or he'll be like, Well stop and I'll say, Well, was that one all right? And he'll be like, Yeah, no, I, I didn't tape that one. I didn't like it or and I'm just, you know, mortified. <laughs> But it's it's so different than then you go into the world of other people, not your family or life right. partner, and you have to be like nice about stuff and say that was really cool. Can we try it a little more like this or that? And I have no idea why that rule doesn't apply with my husband. But <laughs> it does not. It doesn't. <laughs> there you go. Mm. I have three questions about what you just heard. Mm. First of all, as a mom, how does it feel to hear you talk about your children when they're that age? That was awesome. Yes. And it and almost made me cry, for sure. Really? Yeah. And how old are they now? So Rowan is 15. He turned 15 in February. He's taller than me. He's taller than Rain. <gasps> wow. And uh, Luca is turning 14 in uh, two weeks, and Sal is turning 11 in uh, four weeks. Wow. Secondly, reflect for a moment on all that has happened to you, professionally, but mostly personally, since that time that was just before rain and i started marriage coaching oh and so okay. i find it really interesting i actually want to make sure you send me that if that's okay. okay sure first of all because i loved hearing myself say what it was like having my one and two year old um but also just because that's exactly the road to hell okay okay so the only person you need to be polite to is your partner oh so I think it's really interesting that we were still winging it there, you know. That's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, in my defense, my parents didn't work together. Right. I didn't have anybody modeling to me how to work with your partner. But the reality is that you work with your partner. You right. work with your partner even if you don't have a job with your partner. Yeah. You and your partner are making decisions all the time together, like yeah. constantly, tiny decisions, yeah. uh, big decisions, family, fun Within all of that, we're having an opportunity to either connect and heal um, our traumas from childhood or we're having an opportunity to trigger them and mm-hmm. distance ourselves from our partner right. and, and isolate ourselves further into our own uh, abyss of, of, of doom. Okay, so if you, the listener, are wondering why we're getting so deep into Chantal and Rain's marriage, it's what? because that is the to- that is top of mind right now because of your documentary called "I'm Going to Break Your Heart," and that's where you guys go deep mm-hmm. into the workings of a marriage of two 
working musicians, two deeply passionate people. Mm -hmm. So hearing what you said about Rain back then, about your relationship, you would switch up the advice that you gave, not the advice, and, and that whole experience. So how, you know, that whole experience of what you were saying then and how you were trying to kind of reflect your marriage and your relationship in that movie, that must have been really hard to visit, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, so Rain and I started marriage uh, training about, uh, you know, a dozen years ago. So it actually would have been, what was that? 2006. 2006. Yeah. So that wow. would have been right before yeah. when I was still winging it yeah. in marriage. And I reached this moment uh, because I've never not been crazy about Rain. Like, mm. I've always loved him. Uh, and been felt very in love with him, very, very lucky about our life together and happy. But what I found was that I was having these moments where I would just be like, it was almost like somebody was pulling a rug out from under me and the, and the come down was just too hard. And I knew that was something in me, but I also felt that it was something, I felt like I, there was a missing understanding of Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. and so we started marriage coaching so uh, we've actually been doing marriage coaching since then Mm -hmm. so the film looks like we're kind of screwed we're not (laughs) we're just having (laughs) a moment that's that's what that what the thing is okay go ahead so we're going to pivot a little bit over to your musical career (laughs) and i want to go back (laughs) it's quite a pivot (laughs) considering what we just talked about oh my gosh okay no segue yeah um so your breakthrough came in 1996 and i think it was a new era for the singer-songwriter and perhaps a new acceptance for the female singer-songwriter. And correct me if you think I'm wrong here. But do you feel that people were finally discovering the incredible talent of yourself, of Jan Arden, of Sarah McLaughlin, Alanis Morissette? I think one of the reasons why I brought up the, the female aspect of it is because I know that Sarah has spoken about that time. And I've, I've worked in this business long enough to know that we weren't playing a lot of women on the radio and we wouldn't play them back to back. Like, that was a thing. Oh, I know. And so... Yeah. That's, Isn't that that's, funny? It's crazy it when is, you think about it. It now. is crazy when you think about it. That sounds so mortifying, as do many things about, you know, life in this world as a woman, yeah. in, including what still exists, which is, you know, we don't get paid the same amount as right. men. You know, there are things that are, are crazy, um, and we see it. We see it then. We see it now. I, I mean, what about the fact that now, you know, it's no longer a question of, rock and roll dominating the radio therefore it's male heavy it's hip hop dominating the radio therefore it's male heavy right. so there's no women again right. and and i and i'm sorry to go deep i just it's scary to me that this is the trend um on the really literal level a lot of the topics um, that are touched on in in the hip hop male music are are misogynist. Ironically, maybe one of my top five favorite hip hop songs is one I'm on. Is the one you're yeah. on uh, with Drake yeah. over my dead body? Yeah, it's good. It's, it's really good. And yeah. I, you know, Drake is a, a polarizing type of pop star rock. You know, sorry, mm. pop hip hop. You know, rap guy. Now, I mean, I don't like to call him a pop star, but he is incredibly popular. Sure, staying a little bit with hip hop. You had a really interesting and fascinating experience with Kendrick Lamar, Uh who one day called you 
just a few days before and said something like, you're going to be on Saturday Night Live with me. Yeah, like, yeah. Can you tell that story? Because that that's weird, like just a behind-the-scenes thing. How did that work out? It was like a two-week thing. It was crazy. They, the rehearsal, the taped rehearsal, because at Saturday Night Live, you, 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 you have your taped rehearsal. And then you have the, the tape the live perform- the, live the, 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 the live tape. Yeah. And um, it's a, it's a crapshoot as to which one gets used. Oh. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. For every sketch, every performance. It could yeah. be either one. Right. They have their choice. And my first one was absolutely horrible. <gasps> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I literally, I went back to the dressing room and my husband was there and he was like, what is happening? I was like, <laughs> I know it was horrible and I was so upset. So I knew what not to do yeah. when I went back out. Yeah. But they'd also changed the arrangement of the song right before we went on to tape the, the rehearsal. Right. Which was really devastating because I loved the um, arrangement we had before. Wow. So Wow. You do pop up every once in a while in various uh, in various situations, like, you know, over the years... <laughs> Thank God, a little. <laughs> um, over the years, you've had great success with songs being included in TV shows. And it's funny, because I'm thinking, man, that's so easy for them. Because it's emotional shorthand. You're providing the emotion where the writing and the acting couldn't, in some cases. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it depends on the show, right? That's right. I don't know That's which right. one you're thinking of, but yeah. if it's soap opera-ish, yeah, yeah. I think the music can sometimes be a bit of a lifesaver, right? And sure. add maybe the cred. Maybe the, That's right. That's what I think. Know, yeah. yeah. Okay, Chantal, sit tight. We still have lots more to talk about, including your songwriting career. You've worked with some very big names, but it hasn't always been easy to deal with some of those personalities. Let's talk more about that when Famous Lost Words returns. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with our special guest, live in the studio, the wonderful Chantal Kreviazic. Let's hear a brief clip of one of my all-time favorite Chantal songs. That's Before You from 1999, just a Perfect pop song. So, Chantal, your career changed quite a bit in the early 2000s when you started writing for other artists. Now, was that a deliberate thing that happened, or was that just the way you saw your career was heading? Um, well, I think, you know, I don't know if I was ever correct, but I think I thought that if we were going to have a family, maybe, you know, getting off the road somehow would be <laughs> a, a good idea. Yeah. Ironically, I'm... I'm st- I'm more on the road now yeah. and whatever. I mean, it's you you don't really the funny thing about this career is I'm not sure how much you can strategize and pick stuff. You know, right. so much of it is is a path that's picked for you and yeah, there's been an element of of writing for other people and with other people. Um and every experience of it is really uh different. Um Sometimes it's fun at the time and not fun later in your head. Sometimes right. it's, you know, terrible at the time and something you look back on later and go, you know, that was actually pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it's this amazing thing. Can you give us any examples of, well, whichever one you decide, you know, that was interesting at the time or may have been difficult at the time, but turned into something where in hindsight you're kind of going, oh, this is good. This this really worked out. I know that's kind of a tricky... It, well, it is. It, it's so tricky because it, it would depend on my mood even. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like I was having, I, I was putting a towel up on a towel bar in my, my, my house here in Toronto 
the other day, and it's it's from a set of towels I got with Avril. You know, mm-hmm. we both got the same set of towels yes. the same day, and she loved them. She needed to have them too, and 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 um, I had a great memory. Mm-hmm. You know, and overall, there's there's some challenges there. You know, I mm-hmm. think I signed some NDA. I'm not allowed to talk about her, so sure, fine, but <laughs> sure, well, but there's... like there's fondness. Yes. But you know, I'm not trying to recreate something. I'm not trying to get a hold of her. I'm just saying that there's. There's things that are nice memories, too. Yes. And, yeah, and there's, like, you did some incredible work with Avril, with Kelly Clarkson, with Gwen Stefani, Mandy Moore. Yeah, like, you know, I saw things in people that are are really crappy. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw things in Cara Diaguardi. I saw things in Kelly where I was disappointed Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's like... There's a very political aspect to this music business thing. People really want their splits, and they fight for them to the death. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a death, you know, fighter like that. Mm-hmm. I I I have this other career called being an artist and being mm-hmm. a live performer myself. Right. I think if I didn't have that, Tom, might fight I might have been fighting a bit harder in those battles. But I expected other people to also not be fighters right. and to just tell the truth. Right. They don't. Right. They do not tell the truth, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. It's I such... listened to Cara Diaguardi describe yeah. her career yeah. on Howard Stern. My husband, I'm not kidding you, we were driving home one night, and she was on Howard Stern talking about how she wrote songs that I wrote with her that are the biggest hits of her life. <sighs> I was not included in the description. Oh, my God. It was not true how it was written. Wow. Like a Gwen Stefani Rich Girl. Right, right. Yeah, that yeah. was a huge go, go song listen. for you. Why don't you pull up Kara's inter- interview? Yeah. So I can remember driving yeah. through the canyon. Yeah. And, you know, Rain and I, we don't we don't really go down. Like, yeah. we have too much. We're too happy. We don't right. bother. But honest to God, we were sitting in the car. She's talking to Howard. You must have been losing your no, mind. No, no, I'm sitting there. <laughs> I remember, and I remember I felt great. We'd had a nice night out with yeah. friends for dinner. I'm wearing my little leather jacket sitting in the car. And Rain put his hand on my hand as we quietly listened. And then I looked at him, and I was like, thanks, that's enough. You can change the station now. <laughs> and that's all I said. And I was, like, so tempted to write to Howard yeah. and say, let me know if you want me to come on the show yes. and tell you how some of those songs were written. Wow. Or, you know, it's it's hurtful, but... But I don't, you know, I watched Kara, man. She she tried to get up on that idol and yes. and perform. She took her clothes off, showed yeah. her body. You yeah. know, she really wanted to be a, I, I think she really think so needed too. to be a star. Yes. And I don't have that. Yeah. I have the most, like, I'm the luckiest person. I get to get up and actually perform. And I've been fostering a, a life as a performer for, right. for 25 years right. at least. So... And, 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 but, and that must be, that is so gratifying to be able to get that part of your artistry out. Oh, my right? God. And for people Tom, to care about. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, I mean, what kind of a person? Like, I'm so blessed. Right. I can't get mad you at anyone when they're person. trying. No. no. Yeah. Like, when they're trying and they want that, like, I know when I sit down at a piano mm-hmm. that that's that's my thing. Like, mm-hmm. I love it. I'm, I love doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel good there. And I... I, I if that's what someone wants to try and do, I, I can't take that away from you. Sure. Them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So maybe your biggest hit as a writer, but not necessarily a performer, was this part of Feel This Moment by Pitbull and mm-hmm. Christina Aguilera. So let's play that. One day while the light is glowing, I'll be in my castle golden. But until the gates are open, I just want to feel this moment. 
Okay, now, wasn't that supposed to be you on that song? Maybe, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, what happened was Christina wasn't getting into the studio, and okay. there, was a, there was a moment where Nasri from Magic... Uh, who oh, I, I love him. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. He's a riot. Yes. He's a total riot. He's yeah. such a character. Um, and you know what? Ultimately, he's a, he's a good friend. Yes. Like, he's, he's neat. Um, we were talking and talking, because we never had a song that I collaborated on go to the radio that fast. Right. It was literally within a couple of weeks. I'm not kidding you. Wow. It was okay. wild. It mm-hmm. was such a smash, you know? Yeah. It was just the right time. Yeah, and, yeah. And... Um, she just wasn't going in the studio. And mm. my version was very like Chantel, Joan Baez Chantel, like the, the Irish, you know. <laughs> One day when the light is glowing, That's great. I'll be in my castle golden, you know, like yes. that. And um, they were just going to use that because Christina yeah. wasn't getting into to the studio. So I I put the, the call on hold and I yelled to my husband. I was like, what if it's me as the featured artist on that? And he was like, you want a pit bull? <laughs> Really, babe? From downstairs. And I was like, I go back to the phone. I'm like, yeah. I was like, I mean, it's that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I was thinking. Oh, my God. I'm so with you. But now, I should have. I should have fought for that. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it would have been huge for me, I guess. Yeah. um, Just better for name recognition. You know, it can't hurt. It can't hurt. Yeah. But you know what? I was also the first person they called. I started working on the best showman. Greatest Showman. Really? I was doing the music. Yeah. And then I got fired. Oh. I also turned down Heim. What? What do you the mean? The band Heim. Yeah, yeah. with them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I turned okay. it down. I was like, I don't really feel anything there. Oh, okay. Yeah. I could name like 10 things where I was almost or, yeah. you know, and yeah. and like the Greatest Showman is like my son's favorite record. <laughs> and I have to listen to it all the time. And Hugh Jackman's going on tour and selling at arenas. Oh. So, you know, like you have all these things and like yeah. over time you get used to like, ouch, ouch. Like they all hurt a bit and now you don't care. Like yeah. You just get over it. Absolutely. Um, when did you realize that you could really connect with someone just by performing music? That, that mm-hmm. they were being drawn into you as a person and to you as an artist with what you're saying? Mm. That's a really, really beautiful question. You can hear people telling you that they they're like they can be saying certain things to you to enforce or to, you know affirmations can be spoken, mm-hmm. but it's something you kind of feel more inside of yourself. It's almost okay. like this connection that's um, a little otherworldly that lets you know, uh, oh, something's happening. Mm-hmm. Like you almost are having a bit of a spiritual experience as right. a, as a performer, and you know. It's hard to explain. Well, but but it's a fine line, isn't it? Because as an artist and as a performer, you want to go out there and you want to capture them, right? You want to capture your audience. You want to connect with them. But there's a part of you that's also just doing this for you because you're an artist and you need to express yourself. Sure. So it's a real yeah. Selfish. You want it. I mean, I'm lucky because I get to really. I've since the beginning. I've always been someone who was not that open to other people's words and thoughts. Like, like not that I'm not open to their words and thoughts, but I really felt married in my mind mm-hmm. to being a part of the writing and creative process. Right? right. So there's an authenticity piece. Right. That I cherish, and um, so yeah, I want my art, my audience to feel transformed and transfixed, and um, that's incredible. And then it's neat when I feel the fire inside of me too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we're going to wrap things up right now, but um, you know, I just want to say, like I've been in in advance of um, talking <laughs> to you, I've been going through you know your your catalog, and some of the songs have just <laughs> like 
reintroduce themselves to me. You know, Surrounded is just a is just a beautiful song. Before You is a great pop song. Thank that you. is so like it's so hopeful and it's so mm. romantic and it's it's everything I love I love the I've been singing a lot on tour with Moon yeah. versus Sun and I love the you know um, now I think I'll get through being a girl and it yeah. means so much more to me now yeah. that I've lived as a woman yeah absolutely to be a woman and sing those words now is awesome it is interesting when the meaning of a song can change even for the artist that mm-hmm. that wrote it many years ago yeah. and then i heard in this life and i got chills yesterday mm-hmm. listening to the song that i've heard hundreds of times mm-hmm. before so it's a real testament to to what you do and you know you bring such a passion to your music and to your artistry and you you bring such a passion also to your work on your marriage mm. and to explaining about things. You bring a passion to your Twitter feed, mm. I might say, because I follow I you know, on Twitter. It's bad. I have to and, shut up. I try. And, no, no, it's great. I, I, I <laughs> Listen, it, it helps that I agree with everything yeah, you say, yeah, right? Yeah, because then you, know, feel, you feel yeah. affirmations for sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so it's wonderful meeting you and speaking to you once again uh, to be able to talk about your music and for heaven's sake, your marriage, which is such an interesting thing that you would put out there. But I do appreciate you sharing it with us so that people can relate to what you're going through and what you have to say about, you know, about your experience, because it's going to help people. Yeah. One of the, one of the, you know, sort of in, in short, <laughs> Yes. Um, my feeling, uh, a lot of people say, how do you be an artist or how, how do you get rid of writer's block or how, how, do you, how do you carve your path? My feeling is that you speak your truth. Therein lies everyone's truth. Mm-hmm. Everyone will insert themselves into your truth. Your mm-hmm. story is mm-hmm. probably a lot of people's story. That's exactly right. A personal truth is often a universal truth. Great to have you on the show this week, Chantal Kreviazic. I feel like we could talk for another few hours and just scratch the surface. Thanks for being so candid and thoughtful as always. Okay, that does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is produced by the great Adam Karsh. Executive producer Rob Farina. (laughs) Adam is throwing his hands in the air. Don't forget, the best way to support our show is to tell all your friends about it and to listen to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. 